Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Hi, I'm Corbin. I'm the discipleship pastor here, uh, and I'm continuing our series on the divine narrative. Uh, last week, I explained that that's just kind of a fancy way of saying God's story, and so we're just highlighting different moments in the Bible and tying how they all fit together. God's writing a story for us to understand some things, and I. I mentioned a few themes that we can pick up along the way. There's more than this, but I mentioned a few. Does anyone remember any of them? Oh, gosh. Two services in a row. Man. Restoration. That's one of them. Anyone else? There's three R's. Revelation, restoration, and relationship. Thank you. Okay, you guys did better than first service. Good job. Uh, So those are three of the themes. By the way, not a comprehensive list of the themes that you'll see, but as you go through scripture, you'll see how these things work together. And especially as we're looking at these kind of broad strokes, you'll see a little bit more about how God is working through scripture to reveal who he is. And as he's doing that, you're getting to know what he's up to. And what he's up to is restoring his kingdom and restoring relationship with his people. And his reason for that is because he desires relationship with us. Uh, so those are, those are the three R's that I was giving you, and, and you can kind of see that. And we started it off uh, last week in his introduction. He started off with a man named Abraham. And he chose Abraham not because Abraham was good, not because Abraham was righteous. Abraham believed. That's it. And so he set as a pillar of his relationship with his people, as he's restoring relationship with his people, he set as a pillar faith. Faith is what's necessary to have relationship with him. And in his faith, he was reckoned, declared righteous. And so that was, that was Abraham's story. And we looked uh, at Paul's account and Paul's explaining this, how he sees Abraham and the relationship that God starts with Abraham and how it's continued on and how we, if we believe in Jesus, like Abraham believed in God, then we can be part of the same promise that God gave Abraham all those years ago. Remember, I showed you stars on the screen, and, and that's what Abraham looked up and said, that's what your descendants will be. And Paul says about that promise that everyone who has faith like Abraham are in the family of Abraham. And so we who believe are one of those stars. Uh, and he, he told us, Paul also told us that that promise is guaranteed, not because it depends on us and our ability to work or earn or do anything. It's based, it's guaranteed because it's based on God. It's founded on God and his faithfulness and his grace. And then I explained at the very end of last week, the Paul's understanding of grace and how he understands and knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is a sinner. He gets reminded of that all the time. Everyone he encounters, they let him know, hey, you are a bad man. And you cannot earn anything. You will never be able to earn righteousness. You will never be able to earn salvation. You will never earn right relationship with God. So Paul knew that, but he also understood that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient and his grace was more than enough to wash out his sins and restore his righteousness because he believed. And I explained that it's based on that understanding that Paul was able to live out the life that God called him to, where he was able to plant churches and encourage people and help people understand the gospel better and better because he knew he was a sinner, but he also knew Jesus's grace was sufficient. And for us, if we want to live out our faith, if we want to authentically come across as people that really believe and help people understand 
then we have to understand grace as well. We need to know that we are sinners that are in need of a savior and we need to know that Jesus' grace is sufficient for us. And if we can wrap our minds and our hearts and our souls around that, then we will be a church that will authentically live out what God has called us to. And the difference between that is if we try to live Paul's life and try to live like Paul or Abraham, what we will end up doing is it will come across as fake because we haven't taken in the grace. But if we take in the grace and understand the grace and really make it true to ourselves, then when we come to people and tell people about this good, awesome God that we have, they'll see that it's true in our lives and that we believe it ourselves. So we have to, we have to understand grace for ourselves first. Uh, so that's, that's all the pillar of Abraham. The, God started his introduction with Abraham, and he started his relationship with his people through him. And so that's a big pillar, is that faith is necessary and required for that relationship, and that's how it begins. Then we move on to his son, Isaac, who we're looking at today, and what we can learn about our relationship with God through a story about Isaac. Uh, but first, let's pray. God, uh, thank you for yet another opportunity to serve you and to share what you've laid on my heart. Uh, I pray, Lord, that as we dive into the scripture that you can help me share the things that you've taught me and, and teach me something new. I, I help us learn together. Holy Spirit, meet with us and guide us and move in, in our lives and in our hearts and help us really not just, not just hear what you have to say, but be able to like listen. And, and take it in and apply it into our lives. So, uh, God, we've all come here to sacrifice our time to be with you and meet with you and, and learn from you and grow in our relationship with you. So help us do that this morning. Uh, we give it over to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Isaac is kind of the middle child of the patriarchs. He doesn't really get a lot of attention himself. <laughs> There's not a lot of story that goes into just Isaac. There's stories about Isaac and Abraham, and there's stories about Isaac with his son Jacob, but there's not a lot of stories about just Isaac. In fact, the middle part where there's not really there's nothing going on with Jacob or Abraham, where Abraham's died and Jacob's not yet born, the majority of that portion of scripture is actually focused on his wife, Rebecca, and getting his wife. And he's not even involved in that story. So it's kind of strange. There's one story where it involves him like digging wells and he's just really good at finding where the water is. And that's it. That's Isaac's one and only by himself story. And so we're not talking about that today. We're, we're, we're talking about a story that involves Abraham and Isaac. And Isaac is actually just kind of a small character, but you'll see how he ties into a much larger story. And I'm sure you've heard this story before and you know how it connects, but hopefully will be reinvigorated by our understanding of this, this passage. So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 22. Uh, we're going to read 1 through 18. Verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the regions of Moriah. Moriah. <laughs> Moriah. Anyway, uh, sacrifice him as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut off or cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. 
He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over to the ram and sacrificed an offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it, is, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself... God swearing to God. Interesting. Uh, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, third time he said that, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and, the, and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So, story you've probably heard before, um, and, and it, it's, it's a unique story in which God has called Abraham after all the time that Abraham had been waiting for a son, and we talked a little bit about that last week, how God had given him a promise that he would have descendants, and yet he was really old and never had a son by his wife, Sarah. And then at some point in the story, he and Sarah deceive a plan to... Uh, have a child, and they have a child through his servant, her servant, Hagar, uh, who was an Egyptian, by the way. And they have a son named Ishmael, which is interesting why the, in this time it says three times that it's his one and only son, because we know that Abraham had another son. But it's his one and only son by Sarah, where the promise was, was made that he would have a wife by Sarah. And eventually, after, after some time, Sarah was about 90, he was about 100, they eventually have a son. Isaac. Uh, and so it's through that promise that, it's through Isaac that this promise was made, and God, this was the promise that he was faithful and said, you will have a son, and here is his son, Isaac. And then God decides, after some time, he's probably young teens, maybe late, you know, nine, ten, I don't know, somewhere in that range. He tells him, God tells him, to sacrifice his son. Now, Abraham, at this point, has this abundant faith to know that if God provided him his son, he can trust in God. God has been there for him and continues to be there for him. So he knows that somehow, some way, God's got a plan. I mean, notice when he says that he and Isaac are going up, he tells the servants, we're going to go worship and then we will return. 
He knows. And then the author of Hebrews, whoever that is, uh, they, they speculate that Abraham, Abraham thought that at the very least God could raise him from the dead. That's in Hebrews 11. Uh, so at, at the very least, if Isaac, he, he felt like either Isaac was not going to die or if he was going to die, God would raise him back up because he trusts God. He didn't completely trust God before, but now he's seen God fulfill his promises. He knows God will do what he says, and he knows that Isaac is the son of the promise. So he has absolute faith that he can, he can go through with this plan, with what God has called him to do, and know that it's going to be okay. His son's going to be okay. Everything's going to work out okay. Now, what's cool about this story, as you can see, most of us, we, we live you know, post the gospel, and we, we've gotten to study the Bible for years and know what it says. And so we see a, a lot of obvious foreshadowing here. Hopefully. Did you guys see any foreshadowing? The, the third day, the riding of the donkey to the place, that this mountain that he's supposed to ascend, and then he's offering his son, and the Lord will provide. And, and when uh, the wood is placed on Isaac's back, because that's that's what he will be sacrificed on, just like Jesus had the cross on his back, which is what he would be sacrificed on. So lots of connecting stories. And, and the fact that Isaac had a miraculous birth, and Jesus had a miraculous birth, and he's being called his one and only son, which if you remember John 3.16, it's God's, Jesus is God's one and only son. So there's a lot. There's a lot. And then eventually, he's, he, instead of being sacrificed, a, a ram or a male lamb is sacrificed, and Jesus is often known as the sacrificial lamb. Uh, so lots of connecting stories. For something that's going to happen 2,000 years later, that means that we are as close to Jesus as Jesus was to Abraham and Isaac. So this is way into the future. And remember, this is the beginning of God's work in his narrative, in his story. This is the beginning of his work to restore relationship with his people. He started with Abraham. Again, not because he was a good or righteous man, but because he believed. And here's him putting that faith to the test. God's like, do you really believe? You, you struggle with your faith. Let me give you another opportunity to show me you believe and you trust me. And Abraham does. Abraham believes. Abraham trusts God. And because of that, God knows that he can have this relationship with his people. But Isaac isn't the one that's going to be sacrificed. Isaac isn't the one that's going to die. God knows, because he foreshadows it so well, God knows that it's his son that's going to have to die. So God knows that at the beginning of his relationship with his people, he knew what it would cost him to start this relationship, and he foreshadowed his son's death 2,000 years before it even happened. So he, he knew. That helps us understand that God knew what it would cost him to enter into relationship with his people, and he did it anyway. Um, so all of those connections, all of those things are really cool. And the coolest part about all, the, well, at least to me, is not all those connections, but where all this happens. And so I, I, I got kind of Bible nerdy and just studied all this stuff and was jumping around the Bible. And I, there's another passage, another couple of passages in the scripture that help us understand this place. Not, not Moria, Moriah. I, I, not going to lie to you. 
So Moria, if you don't know, is a place in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Uh, and I thought in my head, don't pronounce this wrong because I've done that before. And then I did it anyway. So anyway, <laughs> you can practice and practice and practice and still do it wrong. So at Moriah, uh, that's, that's where God, was, God told Abraham to go, this region to sacrifice Isaac. Um, and so to point out a couple of different stories to help us understand how this all connects together. Uh, let's look at First Chronicles chapter 21. And we're going to see one of my favorite passages in Scripture. We're just going to look at a part of it. I'll explain what's going on in a sec. But verse 15. And God, said, God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as, an, as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and relented. Concerning the disaster... Concerning the disaster, and said to the angel, who is destroying the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was standing at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with drawn sword in his hands, extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. David said to God, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I, the shepherd, have sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done, Lord? My God, let your hand fall on me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Now, this story is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament uh, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And, and the reason is because what's happening is David, king of Israel, he's, the kingdom's pretty well secured. They've fought, they've, they've secured their borders, things have gone pretty well. He's got a pretty awesome kingdom. Everything's going pretty, is good now. But God's been providing, God's been fighting alongside of them, God's been doing all this stuff so that the nation of Israel would finally possess the land that God promised that they would possess. And so David is king over that, and at one point, David decides, in this story, he decides, I'm going to count up my fighting men. And he tells his like, right-hand man, Joab, to go count the fighting men, and he says, no, that's a bad idea. <laughs> that sounds like you're being prideful. Remember, this is not your kingdom. These aren't your fighting men. This, these are God's. You need to remember that. Uh, but David says, no, do it anyway. And so he goes and starts counting them. He doesn't even do a perfect job because Joab, Joab's a good guy. But he, uh, he ends up finding out that God doesn't like this very much. And God comes to David and says, there's going to be consequences for this decision. Now, what's wrong with that? What's the, what's the big deal? What we learn from this story is that math is evil. So... <laughs> Counting is bad. If you're an accountant, change professions. I'm just kidding. That's not what we learned from this story. Um, an accountant, you're fine, probably. Uh, so what we find out from this story is that what David was using the numbers to do was to bolster his own pride, to look at the stuff as his own, as his achievements, as his, his accomplishments. God had provided the victories. God had provided the nation. God put him in charge because he understood that it was all God's, not his own. And for the most part, David does a pretty good job of that. But here's just a tiny moment where he lets the pride come in, and he's like, oh, let me count my people. Let me see how strong I am. And God doesn't like it. And this is just something, this is just me. I'm going to get up on my soapbox for a sec. 
is something that I, 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 the reason why I like this story so much is because I, I feel like in the American culture and in the American churches, we use numbers more like David did. We evaluate our abilities and our value based on numbers. We count and we see. And it, you know, it works in our culture. You know, how much money do you make? How many houses? How many bathrooms are in your house? I'm a big bathroom guy. You got a lot of bathrooms. I'm impressed. Uh, you, how, what kind of car do you drive? You know, what, what's your collection of stuff? How many bitcoins do you have? If you have more than one bitcoin, that's pretty impressive. And don't forget to tithe. But, <laughs> but that's how we value things. And here's the, here's the problem. As growing up in the American church as a pastor, it's really not that much different in our churches. You know the first and most often question I'm, I'm asked? How many people attend? Who's coming? How many people coming? I was a youth pastor for a very long time. And every time I would talk about my youth ministry, the first question I would hear is, how many kids come? And I'm I'm not saying I'm not guilty of it. I would do the same thing. How was was your group last night? I would ask my friends, how was your group last night? How many kids came? You know, and that's that's a problem because we're perpetuating a system. And I believe that most of the time, we're kind of using it a little bit like Dave. Not that we're trying to be prideful, but we're definitely valuing ourselves. And on both ends of it, like if there's a lot of kids showing up, I would feel prideful and feel good about myself, that I had more value. And then when fewer kids would show up, I'd feel worse about myself. And those are actually the same kind of pride, just different ends of it. And I'm struggling with the same thing. And so as a pastor, I've grown up in the church, and I've I found that we keep asking that. And the th- thing is, like... I'll be honest with you, you're probably no different. Like if I told you we, we've got a special guest speaker and he's the church of a local church of like 50 or 100, but all right. But if I told you, oh, we have a special guest speaker, this, church, this guy leads a church of 10,000, suddenly you're like, oh, dang. So special. We look at each other differently. I do it too, and I look at myself differently. And the problem is I feel like that's us not really understanding this story very well. Because I, as I've learned, my job isn't, to value, or I'm not supposed to value how well I'm doing my job or how many kids are coming up. My job is to be faithful with whoever shows up. That's who God, what God has called me to do. Like David's job isn't to count his armies to see his strength. His job is to be faithful what God has called him to, which is lead the people, to be there. He's the shepherd, as he calls himself, to the sheep. And that, that's, that's my job as a pastor. So if you want to help me and the other pastors anywhere, everywhere, help us change this narrative. If you ask questions about how ministry is going, how church is going, how are, how are the home groups going, don't ask how many. Ask, what is God doing? How have you seen God move? Get the focus not on the numbers, but on what God is doing. And, and get the focus off the pastor and onto God. And you can do that by asking your questions. My job, I'm working hard at it. I'm working hard to change the narrative and make sure that I'm not asking the wrong questions to keep the focus on the wrong things. I'm working hard to change that so that we're asking the right questions and keeping the focus on God, what he's doing, not on how many people are coming. Sound good? Can you help me out with that? Cool. All right, I'm going to get off the soapbox now. All right, so this story, what's cool what happens with David is because of this sin that he's committed, and because of his position, it's a very serious thing. And God comes to him and he offers him three options and says, pick your, pick your punishment. Whichever one you want, that's what you get. Uh, so he offers him three different punishments with three different timelines. 
And as David is looking at him, he chooses the one. One, you could look at it as a prideful thing. He chooses the one that doesn't involve other people hurting him. Um, so he doesn't want like, but you also, he's pretty wise here because he chooses the one where God punishes the people. And his reasoning for it is, I know you're a good and merciful God, and I'm betting that you don't like, you don't hurt us too bad. Now, 70,000 people do die. So God was serious about this punishment. But as we saw in this story, at some point God feels sorry. It says he relented. That word in Hebrew, nacham, means that he was sorry. It's the third time in scripture where this word is used describing God either changing his mind or regretting or being sorry. It's the same word, but it's describing this one thing. Whole nether sermon for another. I don't have time to dive into that. But that's just this epic moment where God's just feeling this mercy. For some reason, at this specific spot, God's like, stop. And (laughs) that's when David's like, oh, God, don't punish the people, punish me. He could have stepped up at any point before this. But right when God decides to stop, David's like, oh, wait, hang on. It's my fault. And credit to David. He understands. This is my fault. Punish me and my family, which sucks for his family. But like he's saying, punish, punish me. I'm, I'm the one that deserves this punishment. Let me pay the price. And God's, God's like, no, I've already decided to show mercy what I need you to do. And he tells the prophet Gad to tell him, go build, build an altar here. Remember this spot. Why is that spot important? Why is that specific spot where this story is happening important? Well, for that, we have to jump a book later to 2 Chronicles chapter 3. It's 70 years later in the timeline. Uh, And we see a story where David's son Solomon is about to do something. Verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, the place provided by David. So here in in 2 Chronicles 3, we find out that Mount Moriah, the place where God told Abram to take his son Isaac to go sacrifice him, is the very same place that that angel of the Lord stopped and David built an altar where the temple that Solomon is building for God would be built. And if you know the story of Jesus, he was crucified just outside the temple. So everything that we know about all the sacrifice that is happening, Isaac and Abraham, David offering his life because of his sin, uh, all the sacrifices of atonement that would happen in the meantime because that's where the temple is at and that's where they would do the sacrifice of atonement. And then eventually Jesus all happens on this one small geographic location. Mount Moriah. I don't know if they're all like specifically in the same spots. Probably not. I, I'm willing to bet, though, that because you're supposed to bet on scripture. Uh, I'm going to win a few jewels on the crown with it. I don't know. But I'm willing to, to put some credit on this that the, where God showed Abraham and Isaac to go is the same spot that Jesus ultimately was crucified. And again, tying in all these stories, here's this mount, Mount Moriah, where the temple was built. And the temple mount's still there. Now there's a mosque on top. But 
You can still go there. I've been there. It's pretty cool. And the, the, where Jesus was crucified, and I've been there too. It's really cool. Uh, one of my favorite places on earth, actually. But anyway, where he was crucified is, is just walking distance from where the temple is, which is where all this stuff happened. And so all of it's in this one same spot, as if it's like one giant monument to this idea that sacrifice is necessary to relationship with God. And God knew that. God understood that. At the very beginning, when he was working on restoring his relationship with his people, he knew that sacrifice was necessary, and he wanted to see if Abraham would be willing to do it, willing to participate in it, and he did. And so God blessed him and said, I'm going to bless everyone because of you and your faithfulness and because you were willing to obey. But the really cool thing is, Isaac wasn't the sacrifice because he wasn't a righteous person and wouldn't be able to atone for sins. David wasn't the sacrifice. Even though he offered up his life for the sake of the people, he wasn't the sacrifice that'd be offered there because, again, he wasn't a righteous man and wouldn't be able to atone for sins. Jesus, Jesus would eventually be sacrificed there. And his sacrifice meant something. Not just because, you know, he's Jesus, but because he had lived a perfect life and he lived righteously when he died, his sacrifice didn't just mean, we learned about this last week, his sacrifice didn't just mean that he atoned for what we had did wrong. It also meant that because death had no power over him, he rose again and was able to impart on us his righteousness. So we who believe, like Abraham, and, and enter into this relationship with God, we can receive Jesus' righteousness, and because of faith, faith alone, not because of anything we do, but because we just simply believe, when we appear before God, those of us who believe, will, he will see Jesus' righteousness and not our sin. All of that was set up forever ago, 2,000 years before Jesus, so 4,000 years ago for us, with Abraham and Isaac. He set up this pillar that sacrifice was necessary. And here's the crazy part. We understand sacrifice is necessary for relationship, Right? We know this. When you're taught marital counseling, they're like, just understand that relationship requires some sacrifice. You're going to have to do some compromise. You might not like that word, but we know that whatever the principle of it, it's gonna, there's going to be some sacrifices made. The world doesn't really like this anymore, and we're growing into more of a, you shouldn't have to sacrifice anything. If you want to be in relation, if people really want to be in relationship with you, they'll sacrifice for you, or they'll do, but the weird thing is they're telling everybody that, so... <laughs> Eventually, we don't have any relationships, and that's why there's so much divorce and stuff, because nobody is being taught the right ways to have relationship and understand that sacrifice is necessary. But God knew sacrifice was necessary. Here's the crazy thing. God didn't do anything wrong in this relationship. The one being that has absolute immunity to be able to say, like, it wasn't my fault. He's the one that pays the worst cost. He's the one that sacrifices the most for our sake. He desires relationships so deeply, he's willing to enter into this relationship that requires sacrifice and participate in it himself, even though he shouldn't have to. But he pays that sacrifice to enter in relationship, and it, the monument to all that, as that's happening all throughout Scripture, this one spot, Mount Moriah, is the pillar of that, from Abraham and Isaac to David to the temple where they would offer the, the sacrifice of atonement to eventually Jesus all pointing to sacrifice being necessary for a relationship with God. What does that mean for us today? Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 and 25. 
This is before Jesus was going to die. He's got a little bit of time left. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So Jesus is inviting us, if we believe in him and we want to be his disciples, he's inviting us into this relationship of sacrifice that he himself will participate in. He will sacrifice himself for our sake so that we can have a relationship with him again, so that relationship can be restored. But he's wanting to make very clear to his disciples, and I believe all of us today, that we're going to have to participate in that sacrifice too. He's not calling us to something where just he sacrifices. He's calling us to a relationship where we both sacrifice. And it's important to understand that Jesus isn't saying that you have to die for him. What he's saying is that you have to live for him. Living A living sacrifice is much harder. <laughs> it's much more difficult to live every day as a sacrifice, living sacrificially. But understand that Jesus, again, Jesus didn't just die for us. He lived an entire life. He came to earth as a baby. You ever wonder why? You ever wonder why he lived an entire life? Why he waited so long? Well, he had to live a life. He had to earn that righteousness over time. He had to go through the temptations. He had to do ministry. He had to reveal who he was over and over again. And he had to establish that credibility. So Jesus is is building up this relationship with his disciples and he's helping them understand that if they want to have a relationship with him, they probably don't understand what this is. They're like, pick up the cross. Why, Why would you use that analogy? And then later they're like, oh, yeah. Remember when he said that? So that we understand that. We, we know this because we know how the story ends. But Jesus is inviting us to live like he did where it's a sacrificial life. Um, so it's not just, not just dying for Jesus. That would be easy. That would be great. If we could all just be like, all right, I'm just going to die for God. That'd be cool. But... That's not what God's calling <laughs> Cool. Yeah, mass suicide. Anyway, no. He is calling us to do something far harder to do what he did where we live for him. We live for his glory. We live sacrificially to bless the world around us. Now, I have three things that we have to understand about that if we want to live sacrificially. First is that because we understand this, this is the, the first most important pillar is that this is required for a relationship with God. You, you have to live sacrificially. Sacrifice is necessary for relationship with God. Just like he participated in sacrifice, you have to participate in it too. But that does not mean misery. This is what I got wrong for a long time in my life. You don't have to be miserable. God is not calling you to live miserably. You know, like that's, that's not what I see in Jesus. He lived sacrificially, but that doesn't mean he was miserable the whole time. I think sometimes we get that a feeling when we're like, okay, God is calling me to sacrifice. I remember when I was growing up in youth group, we were all like, oh, if I give my life to God, he's going to make me move to Africa and be a missionary. Like it was some kind of horrible thing. Uh, But it was always something like God is going to make me move somewhere that I'm uncomfortable and I don't know because I have to sacrifice for God. And that was just always what we had to do. But that's not what God has said all throughout scripture. He's talking about how you, you are created by him, and he has purpose in your life. You have talents that you, he wants to use, and there's passion within you. He wants to use all that. He doesn't want you to be miserable. He wants you to live out the calling in your life, but he wants you to do it for him, not for yourself. He wants you to glorify him, not glorify you. And so living out your life for him and living sacrificially does not mean living out everything you don't want to do. 
you might have to do things you're uncomfortable with, for sure, but it doesn't mean being miserable. It means living for the glory of God, not the glory of, insert your name here. And you do that, you can live sacrificially. So just understand that. Make that separation in your mind, that you, living sacrificially does not mean living miserably. Also, faith is necessary. The thing that we learned last week, that faith is necessary for relationship with God, it's necessary to live sacrificially too. Abraham would never have climbed that mountain to sacrifice his son if he didn't trust God. You will never be able to truly live sacrificially if you don't trust God. You have to be able to trust him because he is the God who provides. Another really cool thing, what does Abraham name that mountain? The Lord will provide and what would he eventually provide? Jesus, anyway, really cool story. But trusting that God will provide, trusting that God's got you is the key to living sacrificially. A lot of people think I'm pretty immature with some stuff. And you're right. But one of the things I'm not immature about is generosity. I am faithful. I have complete trust that I can be generous and help others and know that God's going to take care of me. I I can do that. And I know that. I'm confident in that because I trust God. He has always provided. He will always provide. And I'm not worried about that. And so I can live generously and I can sacrifice of myself for the sake of others because I know I can trust God to provide for me. So that, that'll help you. If, if you want to live sacrificially, understand that God will provide and you have to trust in him for that. And the last thing is that living sacrificially blesses others. This is the cool thing. If we jump back to that story where Abraham trusts God and, and chooses to go through with the sacrifice God stops him and at the end he says your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through their offspring all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me if you live sacrificially like Abraham like Jesus then you won't just be blessed yourself you'll be a blessing to the world around you others will be blessed because of you and that's, that's what's really cool. Is what The relationship that God's inviting us into, yes, requires sacrifice, but that sacrifice won't just bless you, it'll bless everybody around you. As you're trusting God to provide, you know that he's going to take care of you so you can help others and be focused on others and make a difference for others. You're not so focused on taking care of yourself or accumulating or accomplish anything on your own. You're trusting God to take care of all that. And you're choosing to just serve, glorify, help. Make a difference. Live sacrificially for the sake of other people around you. And because of that, God will bless not just you, but everybody around you. I think that's just such a cool thing that God invites us into. And I can see it, how it works out personally in my life. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.